Dr. Wendy Logan Young is a breast cancer specialist, and so not surprisingly, uh, for years she tried to get her mother-in-law to do an annual mammogram. But her mother-in-law is, uh, is doctor avoidance, okay? She doesn't like going to see doctors. And uh, so when, when a, a lump appeared in her breast, she just kept that secret to herself. Didn't want anybody to know. Didn't want to go and hear the grim news that it could be something awful. So she put it off, put it off, until finally she started getting severely sick. She got diarrhea. She lost 15 pounds. And now she couldn't keep it to herself anymore. She had to see the doctor. And when she went, she discovered she had waited too long. She was diagnosed with breast cancer, but now it had spread to her colon, and she died within six months. Now, this, this story was part of an article that I read recently in New York Times. It was an article about why people put off going to see the doctor. And so all sorts of reasons were cited. People don't have medical insurance, or they don't feel like they have the time, or they're optimistic that if they just hold on, good health is around the corner. <clears throat> or they don't have a doctor, or they self-diagnose with the help of the internet, or they're embarrassed by their symptoms, or they don't want to lecture about unhealthy habits. I mean, whatever the reason, many people avoid doctors. And just as many sick people avoid the local doctor, uh, they also avoid going to Dr. Jesus for healing. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about Jesus the Healer. Uh, we're going to look at a passage in Mark chapter 5, a story about two people who rather than avoiding the doctor, they made a beeline to Dr. Jesus with their medical problems. So I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 5, and there's an outline in your program that you could fill in as we go along. We are in the second week of a four-part series called Bible Savvy. Uh, this is not only an introduction to the Gospel of Mark, it's also an introduction to Christ Community Church's brand new Bible reading schedule called the Bible Savvy Journal. And this is a church-wide initiative, as we told you last week, across all four campuses, across all age groups. Uh, our challenge is that you would get into the Bible and begin to read it every day. And so we, uh, we learned last week when we launched this series, that this is the number one contributor to people's spiritual growth. There's nationwide survey that's been done, and this is what people says, say has made the greatest contribution to their spiritual growth. So that's why we've designed this daily Bible reading schedule, the Bible Savvy Journal. This is why two to three times a year, uh, we're going to do a four-week series where we drop in to wherever we're at in the Bible reading at the time. So uh, we started the schedule with the Gospel of Mark, a biography of Jesus. Great place to start if you're a new Bible reader. And so today we're going to be looking at a passage, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43, that is a text you're going to be reading later this week. So you're going to come across it, I, I believe, on Tuesday of this week. So I hope that you picked up a Bible-savvy journal by now and that you've gotten started. But I suspect that just as there are people who put off going to see the doctor there are probably people who put up picking up a Bible-savvy journal. And there are all sorts of reasons. So let me cite some of the reasons because I'd love to debunk them and inspire you to get started. Here's some of the objections I hear. Objection number one, uh, I've tried reading the Bible before, but I just don't get the cool insights and personal applications that other people seem to get. Is that you? 
You know, I ran into a guy just uh, the middle of this past week uh, who told me that. He said, oh, I got picked up a journal I started reading, but I'm just, I'm not getting anything out of it for my life yet. And I want to say, if you're feeling that way, hang in there. Because one of the things we're doing this, uh, in this series is we're teaching a, a very simple four-step Bible study method called COMA. I, I apologize for the acronym, COMA, all right? But C-O-M-A is what we're teaching you to get your own insights and personal applications out of Scripture. And, and as you go about learning COMA, how to do this, let me just say right up front, you don't have to hit a home run every time. You know, every day when you open up the Bible, don't have to hit a home run. I mean, even guys like Anthony Rizzo and Chris Bryant don't hit a home run every time. Sometimes they pop up, and sometimes they strike out. You know, and that's okay, as long as they don't do it in a playoff game. But, uh, you know, so, so when you get into the Bible, some days you're going to feel like, I just didn't get anything for my life today, or I just got a single, you know, I'm looking for the home runs. It's, it's the daily reading and saturating your, 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 your life with Scripture over time that's going to make the difference. You get it? Good. So here's objection number two that I hear. I hate daily disciplines of any kind because they make me feel guilty if I miss a day. How many of you have ever felt that way about a daily discipline? And those of you who are not raising your hand, you're lying. Okay, we've all been there. I, I get that. In fact, some of you, you picked up your Bible Savvy Journal last week and you determined, I'm going to start reading the Bible every day, and, and you got two days in. So what about that? Loser, right? Now, let, 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 me, let me ask you a question. How many days did you read the Bible the week before that? You say, well, I hadn't read it at all because I hadn't started exactly. So this last week, if you read it two days, you read it two more days than you've read it on previous weeks, right? I say, way to go. You're, you're beginning a good habit. Now, continue to aim at doing this every day. But if you miss a day, this is really a, a, a wise thought here. If you miss a day, then you miss a day. How about that? Okay, you just, you just pick it up where you left off because God's going to speak to you through that scripture for that day. You, you don't have to go reading all the stuff you miss. Now, if you're OCD, you might want to do that. You know, just scan the passages that, that you missed. In fact, we, we've got a day off every week. There's six days of reading in a seven-day week. So if you miss, you know, a day or two, there's a, a grace day in there to get get caught up if you feel like you just have to. But God's going to speak to you as you pick it up and get started back into it again. Objection number three, some people have said, well, you know, I'm in a, a community group, so I'm already doing a study that requires homework every week. And I say, hey, listen, if your community group study requires you to do just a little bit of Bible every day, you're doing it consistently every day, then maybe you don't need the Bible Savvy Journal. You're in the Bible every day. However, what I've discovered over years of doing community groups is that most of our studies can be done in one sitting. There's like one big day of homework. And for men, we usually do that the night before our community group meets. All right, so what do you read the other six days of the week? See, you need a little bit of Bible every day. So even if you're in a community group doing another study, you might want to consider picking up a Bible-savvy journal and getting started on daily reading in God's Word. And then objection number four, some say, well, you know, I just don't have a Bible-savvy journal. Right, they're available today at Resource at all four of our campuses. If you're electronically inclined, get the Bible app, the Christ Community Church Bible app. It's not only got the daily reading, 
It's got all the coma information that we teach in the Bible Savvy Journal. It's got space for you to journal uh, each day and record your insights and applications. Okay, last weekend we learned that the C of coma, the coma Bible study method, stands for what? I want you to say it with me. C, context. Context. Which means that when you begin reading a new book of the Bible, you'll have a better understanding of what you're reading if you know the historical context of that book. Okay, who wrote it? Who were they writing to? What was going on in the world and in the church at the time? What major topics or themes are you going to find as you, you read that book of the Bible? Now, where are you going to find the answers to all these questions? In a NIV study Bible. So, so that's a great investment. Pick up an NIV study Bible. If you started in Mark this last week, I hope that you read the introduction. Every book of the Bible in an NIV study Bible has a one or two page introduction to that book giving all of the historical con uh, context information. Now, as we look at Mark 5 today, uh, let me set the stage for this passage. Uh, once again, Jesus is doing ministry by the Sea of Galilee, which Mark doesn't refer to as the Sea of Galilee. He calls it what? He calls it the lake. Uh, it's not a saltwater sea. It's actually a medium-sized freshwater lake. This is where Jesus liked to hang out, where he liked to engage people. In fact, in the first six chapters of the Gospel of Mark, the lake is mentioned 15 times. So this is where we find Jesus in Mark chapter 5. Now, last week, we looked at a passage in which Jesus was doing some teaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He was teaching a parable. And uh, interestingly, Mark doesn't record for us a lot of Jesus' teaching. There are, are, are two basic clumps of teaching, two big blocks of teaching in the Gospel of Mark, but not as much teaching as you'll find if you read Matthew or Luke or John, the other biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. Mark is more action-oriented. He wants to tell you what Jesus did. Okay, He's more interested in what Jesus did than what Jesus said. And if you read the Gospel, it's a very fast-paced, action-oriented biography of Jesus. Uh, one of Mark's favorite words, in fact, I think it's his favorite word in the Gospel of Mark, uh, it's, it's a Greek word that when it gets translated into English, it gets translated as immediately, or at once, or as soon as. And so, so Mark is keeping the tempo going. He, again, doesn't want to acquaint you so much with what Jesus said as he does with what Jesus did. So today we're going to take a look at something he did in healing people. In fact, Mark tells two miracle stories, and he starts the first one, miracle story A, and he can't get through it before interrupting himself and tell you about miracle story B, and then he goes back to miracle story A and finishes, finishes it out. Some Bible scholars call this a, a miracle sandwich, okay, this ABA pattern. So I'm going to read to you the opening verses of today's text. As I do, there's something I want you to observe. Now, observe is the O in coma. C stands for context. Learn the historical context of the book. O, as you're reading a Bible passage, observe certain things. Now, I'm going to give you what I want you to observe as I read these verses. It's actually the first point of the sermon today. So if you're filling in the outline, here it is. Jesus is accessible to desperate people. I want you to see that in the story as I read it, okay? Jesus is accessible to desperate people. We're picking it up at Mark 5, verse 21. Hang on, here we go. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, 
A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter's dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who'd done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Stop right there. Did you see Jesus' accessibility to desperate people? Some of you are saying, well, I saw it because you told me to look for it. (laughs) But I might not have seen it on my own. Well, I want to teach you how to make these observations, how to see things in the Bible with your, your own eyes. There there are four things to look for whenever you're reading a passage. Now, we covered this last weekend. And by the way, I would say last weekend's sermon was like one of the most important of the past year. So if you missed it for whatever reason, it's got some basic content you need with respect to this, this coma approach to Bible study. So please go back and read it. As you're reading the Bible, making observations, four things to look for, another acronym, TREATS, T-R-T-S. I promise you it's the last acronym you'll hear from me ever, maybe. Okay. So there's only two, coma, and under the O, there's TREATS. Look for four things, T-R-T-S. The first T stands for theme. What is the theme? What's the gist of the passage you're reading? If you had to sum it up in one line, what would it be? And, and for our benefit, every one of our Bibles has the theme at the heading of the passage. It's in bold letters. So look at the uh, verse 21 where I began reading. Above verse 21, what's the bold heading in your Bible? It says something like this. Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. You got something like that? So you, kn- you know that the passage is going to be about a dead girl and a sick woman, Right? desperate people. So we've already been tipped off to the theme. It's going to be about desperate people. Then the R, the R stands for repeating words or ideas. Let me show you how the idea of desperation, not necessarily the word, but let me show you how the idea of desperation springs up repeatedly in today's Bible passage. You know, the first guy who approaches Jesus is a dude named Jairus. Now, Mark tells us in in verse 22, Jairus was one of the synagogue leaders. That means Jairus would have been a very well-respected, important member of the community. I mean, the very fact that Mark mentions his name is interesting because most often, as you read through the Gospels, when Jesus casually encounters people, we never learn their name. The fact that Jairus' name is given means he was a VIP in that community, but he was also desperate. And that's a repeating idea that I see in this passage. I I see it mentioned in several different ways. For for starters, what did Jairus do when he first encountered Jesus? Look at verse 22. What's the first thing he did? Call it out. Come on, we could do better than that. Call it out. He fell at his feet. 
this dignified VIP of the community. He goes face, does a face plan in front of Jesus. And then note the desperation in his tone of voice. Verse 23, he pleaded earnestly with Jesus. Desperation. And what problem does he bring to Jesus? What's going on in his life? His little girl is dying. Luke's gospel tells us it's his only child. His only child. We're talking about a desperate dad. So, so Jesus agrees to accompany this desperate dad to his home, but along the way, he's stopped by another desperate person. This time, it's a woman who had a bleeding problem. You know, a menstrual hemorrhage, probably, a problem she'd had for 12 years. And once again, Mark uses repetition to get our attention. He, he doesn't just tell us that the woman was desperate. He tells us in multiple ways that she was desperate. Look, look, look at verses 25 to 27. By the way, I, you hear this from me all the time. This is why it's important to bring your own Bible so you could mark it up as we go along. We learn, first of all, that she had a serious bleeding problem, that she was physically ill. I used this woman as an illustration several weeks ago in a sermon, and I said this was not only a medical problem, this was a social problem. Because in, in ancient days, according to Old Testament law, Jews who came into contact with blood were defiled, and so they were temporarily unclean until they could get ritually purified. And until that time, you weren't to go near that person. You, you weren't to touch that person yourself. So she'd been isolated. She'd been ostracized. And she couldn't get ritually clean because this bleeding problem continued day after day after day for 12 years' time. So she's got a bleeding problem. She's had it for 12 years. She's been to see a, a lot of doctors, another indication of her desperateness. I find it interesting that when Luke tells the story, he doesn't mention the doctor's part. Any idea why that is? What did, what did Luke do for a profession? Yeah, he was Dr. Luke. So he didn't want to diss his brother doctors, okay? So he didn't say anything about that. But Mark, Mark says she'd been to see a lot of doctors, and, and he says she'd spent all her money, all she had, and instead of getting better, she got worse. See, one way after another, Mark tells us desperation. Desperation. You could see how I made this observation. The second step in coma. Oh, observation. Desperation. So TRTS, the first T stands for theme. We got a uh, dying girl and a sick woman. The R stands for repeating ideas. We see the desperation in both Jairus and this bleeding woman. The next T in treats, T-R-T-S, stands for truths about God. This is especially good to keep in mind when you're reading a gospel because it's all about Jesus, and Jesus is God the Son. So on any given day, if you want to get something out of the Bible as you're reading through Mark, just say, what did I learn about Jesus from this passage? So, but in any scripture text, what do you learn about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit? Now, what I learn about Jesus, I've already said, that Jesus is accessible to desperate people. Let me tell you why Jesus' accessibility seemed to spring out of the text for me. The minute that Jairus tells Jesus about his dying daughter, what does Jesus do? Look at verse 24. It said so simply, so Jesus went with him. That's it. That's Jesus' immediate response to this man's desperation. Let's go. Let's roll, bro. You know, your daughter's dying. Okay, 
No, 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 well, let me check my calendar to see if this fits on the day's agenda. No objections, no. Well, I got a few questions to ask you first. It's just, let's go. So they take off for Jairus' home, and as they're going, Jesus is surrounded by this crowd, and a woman touches him. And again, we see his accessibility. He turns around and gives the hemorrhaging woman his full attention. So he's accessible to desperate people. That's one of the truths about God the Son that we read in today's passage. Now, T-R-T-S, the final S as you're making observations, is something striking. Anything just because it seems strange to you or it's a new thought or it hits you between the eyes, any, anything that's striking to you in the text. I'm not going to touch on that one right now. I'm going to come back to it in a little bit. But I hope you see how I arrived at this first point, that Jesus is accessible to desperate people. I observed it in the passage. That's the O of coma. But, but I want you to know this, you know, this isn't just an academic exercise. This isn't something you do just so you have something to fill in the, the blank space in your journal. I mean, when you come away with a truth like Jesus is accessible to desperate people, you know, this is something you need to know in daily life, isn't it? You know, I was thinking as I was studying this passage all the way back when I first got married, Sue and I first got married, uh, we had just graduated from college and we moved from the Midwest where we lived. We moved to Boston. We both took new jobs. And probably two to three months into, into our move, uh, Sue came home from work one day and she said, I have just got a raging headache. And uh, so she decided to go lie down, and I walked in a, an hour or so later, and I said, are, are you doing okay? And she said, no, the headache's gotten worse. And I looked at her, and by this time, one of her eyes had drooped shut. And I thought, well, this is not good. So I took her to the doctor, and the doctor took one look at her and rushed her to the hospital. And suddenly there was this group of doctors huddled around her diagnosing her problem, and one of them said, well, this could be a brain aneurysm. I think a brain aneurysm? You've got to be kidding me. I had brought a friend, a brand new friend who I met after our move with me, and he assured me, he said, well, it's a good thing you're in Boston. we got a lot of good brain surgeons in, in town. I'm like, brain surgeons? I'm, I'm just out of college. I'm freshly married. I'm living a 1,000 miles from home, and we're talking about brain surgery on my brand new wife? I was a desperate guy. You know, fortunately, Sue and I were part of a good church, a lot of praying friends, and they got to work praying. And I discovered that Jesus is accessible to desperate people. You know, long story short, within 24 hours, she'd been diagnosed not with a, uh, a brain aneurysm, but with an infection in the fatty tissue behind her eye, and they put her on an antibiotic IV, and within 24 hours, she was completely healed, and we were leaving the hospital. Jesus is accessible to desperate people. Now, if you're here and you're desperate today, it may not be a health issue. It may be a marriage issue. You're desperate. You know, it may be a job-related issue. It, it may be an addictive behavior issue. You're feeling desperate because it's got you in its clutches. It may be a mental illness thing. It may be depression. It may be a bipolar problem. It may be a, a suicide thoughts. You know, what, what, what is causing your, your desperation? Jesus is accessible to desperate people.
people. Here's one thing I found out about Jesus, though, over years of having walked with him, and I find this in the scripture as well. Jesus doesn't get serious about helping us out until we get serious about seeking that help. Let me repeat that. Jesus doesn't get serious about helping us out until we get, we get serious about seeking that help. We're going to talk more about how to do that, how to seek Jesus' help. Here's the second truth I want to hit on. Jesus responds to faith. Jesus responds to faith. So we're making observations about this passage, and as I read the text to you, you, you might have noted that faith is another one of those repeating words or ideas that gets our attention. I mean, we've already seen some instances in the opening part of the story, some instances of faith. Go back and look at verse 23. You know, Jairus is talking to Jesus, pleading with him to come help his daughter. He says, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her. And, you know, and maybe, just maybe her condition will improve a little bit. Is that what Jairus says? Is that what Jairus says? No. Jairus says in an amazing statement of faith, he says, Jesus, you come, you put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Wow. You come, you touch her, she'll be well. What about the hemorrhaging woman? Look at verse 28. She worked her way through the crowd so she could touch Jesus because she thought, that these are her thoughts, verse 28, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Wow, that's faith. Now pick up the story in verse 34. The, the bleeding woman does manage to touch Jesus and she is immediately healed and Jesus senses that, that somebody has tapped into his healing power. So he stops and he identifies the woman who touched him. Verse 34, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Your faith has healed you. I also like the fact that he calls her daughter. According to, uh, to Bible scholars, this is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus addresses a woman with this term of affection, this term of familial relationship. In fact, if you, if you thought when I first read it to you, boy, that was kind of a mean thing for Jesus to do, to out this woman. You know, like, who touched me? She's already embarrassed. Why does Jesus do that? Because he doesn't simply want to heal her. He wants a relationship. He wants a face-to-face -face encounter. He wants to bless her. He wants to look at her and say, daughter, go in peace. You know, keep, keep this in mind when you seek the Lord's healing in your life. If he heals you, it's not just about meeting your need at that moment. It's about the relationship he wants with you. He wants to draw you to himself. Jesus responds to faith. Keep reading because I want you to observe an additional reference to faith in the Jairus half of the story. So we continue on in verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking to the hemorrhaging woman, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter's dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just say it with me. Believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. Another reference to faith. Now, here's an interesting observation that I make at this point in the story. Another O. Okay, this, this, is, this is TRTS, this is something striking. 
Okay, what I find striking is that even though this is a story about people's faith, I find it striking that Jairus' faith is wavering a bit here. I mean, this is the guy who initially said, you come home with me, touch my daughter, and everything will be great. Now a messenger has come and said, it's too late. Your, Your dying daughter is now dead. The situation has gone from bad to worse. No need to bother Jesus anymore. So his faith has taken a hit. What does Jesus do? He turns to him and says, don't be afraid, just believe, just believe, just keep believing. Evidently, Jesus understands when our faith wavers because we're waiting for him to intervene and he hasn't done anything yet. You ever have that happen? I mean, there are days when you're just on top of it, you're believing, and then the next day you're under the pile and you just you know you just don't have the least amount of faith and those are the times friends to cry out to Jesus and say you know I can't even believe without your help I've got no faith you got to give me faith got to give me faith Jesus responds to faith let let me insert a brief application here this is the a of coma skipping over the m c stands for context O stands for observations that you're making in the text. And the A is eventually you want to get down to a personal application. What does this mean for me? So let me suggest one. You know, one of the ways that we demonstrate faith when we're in need of a physical healing is by following the Bible's directive to go to the elders of our church and ask them to pray for us, to pray for our healing. Okay, I want you to hear this from a different passage. This is James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. You don't have to turn there, but this is an important enough text if you're taking notes to jot down the reference. James says, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. In the first weekend of every month at Christ Community Church, which means this weekend. Our elders are available for healing prayer, both during the services, typically when we have communion, as well as after the services. And in fact, we remind you of this every month. Elders can pray for you if you're in need of healing. My guess is on any given month, there are some of us who are in desperate need of healing but don't go to see the elders for prayer. It may be because we're too timid. It may be because our problem is so involved we don't want to get into it. It may be because we're in a hurry because we want to get home and see the Bears lose another game. (laughs) Really. And that lack of faith, let me call it what it is. Because if we believed that God would work through that, we'd do it, right? So that lack of faith may be the reason why some of us haven't been healed. Now you say, so you're saying that everybody who goes to the elders and gets prayed for gets healed. No. Nope. But many do. In fact, I could say I'm one of those who's gone to the elders on a number of different occasions in the past in need of healing, and they've prayed, and God's healed me. Jesus responds to faith. You know, I've found that those who go to the elders and don't experience a physical healing have told me numerous times in the past, 
That even though the physical healing hasn't come, there's been a, a spiritual and emotional healing that has given them new strength with which to face their health challenges. So it's worth going. And we'll, we'll talk about, before we're done today, we'll talk about some of the reasons that healing doesn't come. Okay. But Jesus responds to faith. He, here's a third truth about Jesus I find in this text. Jesus has the power and compassion to do a miracle. Jesus has the power and compassion to do a miracle. Now, pick it up where we left off, verse 37. Going to read the rest of the story and look for this power and compassion. Uh, Jesus did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the little girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, you're making observations as you read. T-R-T-S. The S stands for something striking. Here's why I want to tell you about a couple of striking things that you know, jumped off the page at me as I was reading this story. One of the striking things was the mood change of the crowd at Jairus' home. I mean, did, did that strike you as kind of weird? Here are these people, they, they walk up and the people are weeping and wailing, which you'd expect at the home of a girl who has just died. And Jesus arrives on the scene and he, he says, she's not dead, she's only asleep. And they start laughing. And you're thinking, whoa, this is strange. They go from wailing to laughing in the blink of an eye. It's not only weird, it's kind of rude because the grieving dad is standing right there and they're laughing. So here's the background for that. Okay, the background is in ancient times, mourners were hired for a family funeral. In fact, one rabbi writing at this time said, even if you're poor... You know, for a family funeral, you ought to hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman. I like that, you know, one wailing woman. Cross that one off. Got the caterer, finger foods for the wake, but no wailing woman yet. Okay. So these are professional mourners. They got no skin in the game. They don't really care what happens to Jairus' daughter. So when Jesus says something that sounds absurd to them, they immediately go from the professional wailing to laughing. So that's one striking thing. Here's another striking thing I find. Why does Jesus say, she's not dead, she's only asleep? I mean, he'd been told by the messenger along with Jairus, Jairus, your daughter is dead. They knew the daughter was dead. Jesus hasn't seen her yet. You know, so there's nothing that he sees in her. They're still in the outer part of the house. He hasn't gone to the inner room where she's laid out. So how can he be so certain that, you know, what does he mean <laughs> that she's not dead, she's only asleep? What he means is that she's not permanently dead yet. And he uses this very same language when he talks about a good buddy of his named Lazarus who died. Okay, you could read this story sometime on your own. It's, it's in John chapter 11. Jesus is at a distance from Lazarus' village of Bethany, so he turns to his disciples, John 11, verse 11, and he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. 
You say, fallen asleep? Lazarus had been dead, mummified, and sealed in a tomb for four days. What does Jesus mean? He's fallen asleep. What he means is that Lazarus was not permanently dead. Jesus had a plan. (laughs) Read the rest of the story. He planned to go to Bethany and raise Lazarus from the dead. That's the same thing going on in the story about Jairus' daughter, which is why the professional mourners laughed at Jesus. They got it. They knew what he was saying. They they, they knew knew that he was intimating that this dead girl was going to be raised back to life as easily as if she'd been asleep and you could go in and tap her and say, honey, time to get up from the nap. How absurd. The professional mourners didn't believe that Jesus had the power to do a miracle. What do we believe about Jesus? What do we believe about miracles? You know, I've been reading a book in preparation for for this part of the sermon that I picked up a while ago. I I, I just like the title, so I got the book. Uh, The title of the book is, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Isn't that a great title? So I'm reading a chapter in the book on miracles, and according to the two authors of this book, uh, one of the major objections historically to miracles was raised by a philosopher by the name of David Hume back back in the 18th century. Uh, Mr. Hume reasoned something like this. He said, uh, miracles, by definition, are very, very rare occurrences. However, natural occurrences are very commonplace. And because natural occurrences are very commonplace, you can suspect there's going to be a lot of evidence backing them up, unlike miracles. So Mr. Hume says, if you're a wise person, you're going to go with the evidence. You're going to go with the preponderance of the evidence. So if a little girl has died, she's going to stay dead. Okay, that's what the evidence says. If a little girl has died, it's very unlikely that she's going to be brought back to life. Now, now I want to push back on his argument here use an analogy from the world of sports, from golf. Okay, let's talk about a hole-in-one for a second. A very, very rare occurrence, right? But some guy says to me, and he says, you know, I got the ball in the cup in one stroke. So what I'm tempted, tempted to believe is, no, you didn't. It was like two strokes or three strokes, or if I'm the golfer, 17 strokes. Okay, this ball did not land in the cup in one stroke. But now if he turns to me and he says, but I was playing in a foursome and my three buddies can vouch for it. Oh, now there are eyewitnesses. What Dr. Hume did not consider is that eyewitnesses are evidence. So if I, no matter how rare the occurrence, if you've got numerous eyewitnesses who concur with each other, this is what we saw, there's evidence there. So when a mom and a dad see their little girl raised from the dead, when Jesus' three buds, Peter, James, and John, see it, when Peter later tells a good friend of his named John Mark, who then writes a gospel, a biography of Jesus, and says, this is what what happened, we can say, that's evidence. Jesus did a miracle. He has the power to do miracles. But maybe we question not his power, and maybe we question his willingness to do miracles. Maybe we say, well, yeah, I believe Jesus could heal me if he wanted to. I just don't know if he wants to. I'm not sure Jesus cares. Maybe you felt that way before. 
So, so are miracles simply displays of Jesus' power so as to authenticate his identity as the Son of God? Is that what they're about? They're just these displays that say, I'm God, look what I can do. Because what I find in the Gospels is that what motivates Jesus to, to do miracles oftentimes is his compassion for the people he healed. Just, just take a look at the story again that we've been reading. You see any signs of compassion on Jesus dealing with Jairus? Like the way he immediately set up for, for Jairus' home with him when he heard that the guy's got a dying daughter? Or the way he bolstered Jairus' faith by saying, don't be afraid, bro, just believe. Or the way he took the little girl by the hand. Bible scholars say this is unusual. In fact, in, in the Old Testament or all rabbinic literature, you don't find healings accompanied by a touch of the hand. There, there's something very intimate, something very personal, some love, some compassion is being communicated from Jesus to this little girl. And, and don't you see compassion in his interaction with the hemorrhaging woman? You know, offering her not just healing, but a personal face-to-face -face relational encounter. And his addressing her with that affectionate title, daughter, go in peace. You know, Jesus has the power and the compassion to do a miracle to heal. Then why don't we see more miracles being done today? You know, maybe because we haven't followed that directive I mentioned earlier, the Bible says, are you sick? Go to the elders of your church and have them pray for you. Okay, maybe it's because we don't, don't yet live in Jesus' eternal kingdom. Okay, there's coming a day, according to Revelation 4, verse 11, last book of the Bible, there's coming a day when Jesus will return to earth, set up his eternal kingdom, and in that kingdom... Revelation 4.11 says, He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death or mourning or sickness or pain. Wow. But we're not there yet. You know, we're still living in an era where we see little bits, little evidences occasionally where Jesus steps in and heals. It's not the full-fledged kingdom to come. And maybe, maybe we don't see as much healing as we'd like to see because the healing that's going on is of a different sort. So if you read Mark chapter 2 this last week, you're reading through Mark, you read a story about a guy who was paralyzed and his four buds bring him to Jesus because he can't get there on his own. They bring him on a mat, they put him before Jesus. Remember the first words out of Jesus' mouth? He looks at the guy and what does he say? He says, your sins are forgiven you. He's brought there for healing. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. The religious leaders who are listening in, they're outraged. Who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Does he think he's God? Jesus knows what he's thinking, and it's like, okay, you think it's a bigger deal to physically heal him? If that's what you want, he turns to the guy and says, pick up your mat and walk, and the guy leaps to his feet. So which was the bigger miracle? In Jesus' estimation, I think it was the internal healing, the forgiveness. Because at the end of the day, anyone who's healed today is eventually going to get sick and die physically. But you get healed on the inside, you get forgiveness, you get the salvation that Jesus offers those who surrender their lives to him. And friend, you're healed for all eternity. You'll live forever in Jesus' eternal kingdom. In fact, I'd say to you today, if you've never, if you've never been healed on the inside... 
you've never put your hope and your trust in Jesus as the Savior, the King of your life, do it today. Get the healing on the inside. That's the most important healing you can get. Now, in just a few, few moments, we're going to sing a closing song. We're going to collect our gifts and offerings across our four campuses. And, and as we release you then, we're going to have our elders available at every campus. Now, your campus pastor will tell you specifically where in your auditorium or building those elders will be, as I'll tell you here in St. Charles. Jesus responds to faith. If you need healing, go and say, please pray for me. If you need salvation, say, I need to surrender my life to Christ. Can somebody pray with me? And, and you can go to the back of your zone at any of our campuses. There's a prayer leader there for your zone. If it's not a healing issue, if it's a salvation issue or a job or a marriage, any other issue, go back to that prayer leader behind your zone. But if you want physical healing, go see the elders and say, please pray for me. Now, let's sing from our hearts about what God can do, and then we'll close our service.